Good day and welcome to Inspiration and Adaptation, the Nell Street Art Center's weekly podcast, which explores how artists are maneuvering these challenging times. I'm Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Bunnell Street Art Center in Homer, and I'm very happy to have with me today two um, Alaska artists, Sarah Tabert, printmaker, woodcarver, multimedia artist, and writer, Christine Bile. Bunnell Street Art Center is situated on the lands of Miknalching, Kayakinu, Ninilchik Village Tribe lands that have been sustainably stewarded for thousands of years since time immemorial by the indigenous people of this region. Tinan, Chicknik, Kayana, thank you. We're committed to resisting colonialism by partnering with indigenous artists and supporting indigenous-led practices. And our land acknowledgement's a living document, so we offer the statement with good intentions. It's not our intent to offend, and we welcome any feedback on how we can continue to improve our efforts in this journey. So welcome Sarah and Christine and all of the guests who are in the Zoom room with us today. In just a moment, we'll go on Facebook Live. I wanna introduce you all to Christine and Sarah. Christine Bile is the author of Dirt Work and Education in the Woods, a book about trail crews, tools, wilderness, gender, and labor. It was shortlisted for the 2014 Willa Award in nonfiction. Her fiction and essays have appeared in Glimmer, Train Stories, The Sun, Crazy Horse, and Brevity, among other journals and anthologies. She's made her living as a professional trail builder for the last 24 years. And she lives in interior Alaska with her family and spends as much time as possible exploring wild places by foot, bike, skis, boat, and dog. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. And Sarah Tabert. He is a printmaker and a mixed media artist from Fairbanks, Alaska, with an MFA in printmaking from the University of Nebraska Lincoln. Her love of woodblock printing has led to the creation of carved, painted wood panels. In addition to smaller works, there's large scale public art commissions can be found throughout Alaska. Her work is housed in public collections throughout the state and far beyond. In early 2020, the Alaska State Museum presented a solo exhibit of her work. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks. And so um, as we transition into um, Facebook Live, I'm going to invite um, you, Sarah, to start us out by orienting us to, um, you know, who you are and what you do by way of introduction to a, a new audience. And, um, and then we'll go into sharing some images, if you would, um, about you know, your life and, and your work and so forth. So if you don't mind jumping in. <clears throat> okay, well, thank you very much. I've been enjoying participating as a audience member in these discussions as frequently as I can. I know I've missed some of them, but um, I really appreciate the chance to connect. And although it's very different, it's nice to see a few people um, from far away in as real an option as we have these days. Um, I, Asia asked us to talk a little bit about where we are physically, or at least that's how I understood the question. And um, I am a full-time studio artist. I live and work on a large piece of property about um, 10 miles north of Fairbanks. Um, interestingly, at least to me, I don't know if it is to anybody else, this uh, piece of property was along my school bus route that I took as a kid um, when I was heading off to elementary school. And I have some really distinct memories of passing by these roads and kind of peering down them and thinking, whoa, I wonder who lives down there. That looks a little scary. Um, but, you know, uh, 45 years later, here I am. Um, at the end of one of those scary looking roads and loving every minute of it. So I will try and launch my screen share here. Please give me feedback if it doesn't work or if you can't hear me. And share. Uh, slideshow from the beginning. 
So are you seeing what you think you should be seeing? Mm -hmm. Okay. So as you make your way towards our property, um, you would head down a relatively short dirt road that is lined with um, some car collections, some shacks that are left from pipeline days, which we now unfortunately own and are returning to the earth uh, along a timetable of their own making. At some point, we'll be able to take them down. And of course, we have a not insubstantial collection of junk of our own. Um, we like to think, and by we, I'm talking about my partner, Brandon, who is a builder. And um, we have a saying between ourselves that there's no problem that can't be solved by building another building. So we have quite a collection of shacks and structures that serve different purposes. Um, we bought this property in 2002 and have been building uh, basically out of pocket ever since. And it's been a slow process of gra very gradually improving our standard of living. We just crossed a major threshold about this time last year where we now have a water building that has a shower with on-demand hot water and a washer and dryer and a sink. And it's been um, incredibly life-changing after 19 years of hauling five-gallon jugs. It's quite a break. The main draw for us for living here is that this property is on the edge of a fairly large um, public recreation area. I would say kind of uh, public land, light, mildly protected. Uh, it has a network of trails that run through it. And um, over the last five or six years, we've been in the process of kind of merrily giving away our property value. We've put, um, I think now 65 acres of our two original 80 acre parcels into conservation easement. So it all abuts the public land. And although the property can be bought and sold, um, the easement will stay in perpetuity. So um, no one will be able to develop this property in the future. I spend a lot of time out on the trails. This is not in my backyard, but um, this is one of my favorite activities we have. At the moment, we have four dogs. We've had up to five, and um, I'm an avid cross-country skier and ski drawer and like to spend as much time outside as I can. A little bit of what it looks like in the summer. I think the only person in the audience that I know has been here is Katie. who spent some time with us um, a couple of summers ago when she had chosen in Fairbanks and was here at a time that looked much like this. Um, this is our house, siding optional, as often is the case in Fairbanks. And this is my studio. Um, we decided, or I decided, that I wanted to do it once and do it right and make sure that I had as much space as I needed. Um, I was able to borrow the money to pay Brandon to finish the inside. So. I have a really quite nice and very finished working space. Um, however, our living space would not qualify as that. I told Asia that um, I, I thought it was pretty entertaining for me to hear artists talk about how they, they really need to have everything their life, in their life tidy and organized before they can get to work. Um, if that was the case for me. I would never ever get anything done. Um, our houses, probably half wood shop. Um, Brandon has a significant amount of the territory taken up with woodworking and there's kind of a semi-permeable membrane between house and shop and a bunch of dogs and nothing is finished and nothing is ever clean. And although I'm from a family of extremely tidy and organized people, um, so this is this does not come naturally to me. I've found it actually uh, it's forced me to be flexible in some ways that I think have been useful to me as an artist. On the other hand, my studio, nice and clean most of the time, not today because I am packing up a 
lot of uh, printmaking kits for a class that I'm teaching. Um, and it is, it's a lovely space. There's a creek that flows around two sides of it. It's kind of a beacon in the dark. Um, and it's definitely the place that I want to be most of the time. Downstairs is, is uh, pretty much committed to um, printmaking and a little bit of woodworking is moving in there. Upstairs is a flexible space and when I'm working on larger public projects, that's usually where they are. This was a few years ago. I can no longer work in a position like this anymore. I have to have stuff up off of the floor, but um, that's some pretty good knee calluses when I was done with this, when the, with this big one. Just as a little introduction to my work, I'm um, trained as a printmaker focusing on woodcut. That has always been my first love in the, and, and the first art form that I found my way to. Um, things are changing quite a bit lately. I think everything I do will always be related to and informed by printmaking, but I'm becoming much more interested in wood as a medium in its own right, and I've been taking woodworking classes uh, through the folk school here in Fairbanks and hope to um, be pursuing that further in a more serious way within the next year. This is a small um, shrink box made out of birch. And I've also been working on some things that might possibly be considered sculpture. I don't entirely know what I'm up to, um, but I am making things that have a three-dimensional quality to them and, and enjoying that. Um, the last two pieces I showed as well as the next few are recent work from my exhibit titled Lowlands that was at the Alaska State Museum um, in February. And uh, these are kind of an exploration of my immediate environment. I'm really finding myself more interested in these sorts of in-between landscapes that are not urban, that are not wilderness, um, but have a wilder aspect, both in terms of the way people inhabit them, you might call it slightly lawless, and also the way the objects uh, that humans bring to that landscape interact with the natural elements in our somewhat degraded. Uh, this piece is called Poor Man's Dream. This print is called This Dog Has Died. This is a piece called Quonset with a few bullet holes. This is a broken stove, little birch. Cabin 17 gone to ruin. And here's a partial view of what my exhibit looked like at the museum. Um, it was a, if any of you have been there, you know that it's a cavernous space and it's quite an effort to um, inhabit that space fully. Uh, there I am, a little tired after all of it. Unfortunately, um, my exhibit got caught up a bit in the early part of the pandemic, and I know we'll talk more a bit later about how that's affected us as artists, but um, I think it closed a little bit over halfway through its run, and there was no possibility of it reopening um, within a reasonable amount of time. So they uh, took the show down and sent it back to me. Um, I was of course, sad that that had to happen, but um, very, very grateful that I had the opportunity to exhibit there and that as much of what happened, what should have happened was able to happen. And the uh, response to the exhibit was really gratifying. Um, there are a number of other things that I could talk about. I don't want to take up too much time, um, but one, one other aspect of what I do in my life as an artist as I am um, interested in and active in artist residencies and I've had the good fortune to participate in a number of them um, through the National Park Service and this little piece is from 
one that I did last summer. I was an artist in residence on the Chilkoot Trail, which is an interesting residency because it is a partnership with the U.S. Park Service and Parks Canada. Um, and also that you're moving during the entire residency. You have two weeks along the trail, uh, which is a, a large amount of time for what is a relatively short distance to cover, but it was great to be able to be out there um, and really get a sense of things. As for what I've been working on this summer, it's been, it's been a little bit disjointed, as you might imagine. Um, Economic necessity rose to the forefront very quickly after the chaos started. Um, this is one of the few pieces that I made that I think is kind of a direct response to what we're going through right now. This one's called Argument Arsenal, um, and it will be at the Anchorage Museum for the biennial exhibit that I think will open before too long. Um, Otherwise, I've been pretty occupied and extraordinarily thankful for, thankful for some um, private commissions, several of which I can't talk much about. They, they are private in the way that they're very, very personal to the folks who commission them. Um, but uh, the most recent one that I finished was for a fellow artist in Fairbanks who wanted some uh, work to accompany both the outside and the inside space near her front door. Um, so that's what I've been up to lately and uh, I think I'll be quiet now. So thanks. Thank you so much, Sarah. <clears throat> that was beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so, so rich to like to see the way in which you work and you prioritize your studio process and how much that's contributed to your um, to your success both in public and private you know commissions and installations around Alaska really extraordinary really inspired by that commitment and that was a beautiful slide talk as well so to further orient us before we get more into a dialogue, I've asked um, Christine Bile to do the same thing, to kind of give us a little bit of a slide talk view of, um, of her world. So um, Christine, would you mind popping us into screen share from your side? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Sarah, it was great to hear that. I, uh, just by way of short intro, I, I have heard about Sarah through mutual friends for years and we have always, I think we've had a couple events or parties where we were supposed to meet and didn't. So it's really great to see your face and, and hear about your life. And I'm kind of struck by a lot of the symmetries that we have, which I will get into. I, I live outside of Healy on Stampede Road, a little north of Healy, Alaska, a town of about a thousand people. Um, I'm on traditional Athabascan lands, uh, about 63rd and a half parallel. And it's kind of right at the edge of the taiga forest where it um, moves into tundra. So we're surrounded by the the land of little sticks, tiny little spruce trees. Right now we have about a foot of, and a half of snow. Um, and it's the nice light powdery interior snow where you actually just need a, 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 a broom for your porch instead of a shovel, which is one of my favorite things uh, for these early snows. Let me see if I can figure out how to get this PowerPoint to be the primary thing so you don't have to see my whole screen. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's see if this works. You guys seeing that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is my yurt. <laughs> uh, it's a 16 foot circle, which we have lived in for a lot longer than we planned. Um, Sarah, a lot of what you were talking about, about home spaces was ringing true because my husband and I have been building uh, a little differently. We have a bunch of small buildings as well, but we're building a um, scribe fit um, short log um, kind of hybrid log building uh, cabin. And so uh, fitting that in between, you know, paying for everything out of pocket and working full time field seasons, which I'll talk more about later. It's a slow deal. So I laughed when I saw your picture of the entry with the, the, uh, snowed in camper because we have two campers right now which we refer to as our immobile homes because neither of them run um, but they make great guest cabins so they're part of our 
our uh, infrastructure. Anyway, so little round yurt. Um, we have a kitchen cabin as well, but the yurt, this is from a couple days ago, so that's what our snow is looking at right now. Uh, we also abut um, some protected land. Uh, we have a smaller, just a couple acres, but back up to state and borough land that's all undeveloped as well. Um, this is what uh, the taiga tundra area looks like in the, in the fall, the aspen groves looking out over, uh, over the Nanana Valley to the south of us. Um, and then we're just a little bit north of Denali Park for the National Park for those folks who don't know Alaska's ge uh, geology or geography very well. And then that other photo on top is a kind of a fallish um, look at the Healy Range, which is kind of the outer outer end of the Alaska Range. Um, the bigger peaks are a bit further um, south and west of us. <clears throat> and that's my old departed dog who I had to put in after hearing about yours. We've had a couple sled dogs over the years and recently, a couple years ago, lost them both and have been in a period where it wasn't really smart to get a new one because we have so much field time right now. Um, but it's a daily whole absence. So I try to ski drawer with other people's dogs. Actually, we have about, I think close to 300 sled dogs within about a five mile perimeter of my house. So if I ever want a dog, there's always one to get. <laughs> but I do miss having them daily and we'll, we'll look forward to having that again. So um, we, I don't have a studio actually. I, um, I have a little space in my yurt. This the chair on the um, right-hand side of the screen is a chair I inherited from uh, Elizabeth Bradfield. She's a poet. She and I went to graduate school together and she had termed that her poetry chair. And when they left Anchorage, I inherited it. So when I sit in it, which I sit in it for lots of things besides writing, I always at least have the, the internal pressure that I should be writing because it's the poetry chair, even if I'm doing something else. So um, yeah, I have my bookshelf and a you know place to to write in a chair, but living in small spaces my whole life, really, my whole adult life, I have learned to make the most of, I joke that this is my office, this little, whatever it is, eight inch square. It's my roomiest place. It's the spot that's only mine. I have a lot of elbow room and um, inside my head is pretty much the only place that can accompany me wherever I go between field work and travel and, you know, on an airplane, in a, in a library, at, somebody else's house staying with my brother in Anchorage in Costa Rica on a you know mountain trip just wherever I am I always have an office if I need it and uh, that's kind of been a way for me to juggle the sometimes the craving for a little more space of my own internally and um, try to carve that out um, through either ritual or just the um, the discipline of being able to go inside when I need to and that's a, a a real boon of being a writer. Sarah, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't fit, you know, wood, wood and tools and all that inside uh, your mind. So that's one of the nice portable things about writing that I really love. Um, my, my writing practice is a weird one to talk about. I always feel a little bit self-conscious when I know that I'm going to need to talk about it because um, I'm not one of those artists who has a daily practice. I wish, I spent a lot of years wishing that I did, that I was kind of chafing against that, that um, inability to have that kind of structure and having heard from a lot of places that the best writers carve out this much time from six to 10 and then they check their email and then they make their lunch. And then I realized, you know, like Stephen King can do that and Wendell Berry can do that and Rebecca Solnit can do that or whatever, but that's not my life and it's not my deal. And I've got to just make the best work I can in the cracks of the other things I do. So the summer, these are pictures of building. Um, we were trying to get a second story and a roof on this summer. So we had about a month where I didn't even, I hardly even read, which is really strange for me. I usually read every night before I fall asleep and in the morning, but it was like barely all we could do. Um, and the picture on the lower left, I had to put on because um, it's just funny for anybody who's a climber. I, I had a, a long period of mountaineering and um, rock climbing in my past. I haven't had a lot of trips lately, but this was one of the few times in my life where I used my prusik, which is a, a rope set up for securing yourself to a, an anchor rope from your harness and a blow dryer because it was too cold to lay the Grace Ice and Water Shield on our roof. So we had to apply heat to it. And I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know how many people use a prusik and a blow dryer at the same time. I never had, so that was a good one. Um, there's a cabin in progress with the Tyvek in progress look. 
Um, the other part of my summer, the working part is spent um, on in the field doing trail work. As uh, Asia said in my intro, I've been doing trail work for about 24 seasons now, first for the park service and in, in my own business with my husband for the last uh, 12 years, I believe. So a bulk of my time is spent doing stuff like this. We had a, a helicopter access project in Denali State Park this summer, which made me feel like the 1% trail <laughs> builders whisking in and out by, by, by air. Um, but um, one of my main mantras um, is an, a Latin phrase that was attributed to St. Augustine originally, I think, but has been a similar version of it has been used in many other traditions. There's a Zen proverb that's similar. Um, Salvador um, Bielando, which means it is solved by walking. And uh, that's been, you can see these are all pictures of me walking this summer on various projects. And that has been the thing that connects my physical life to my writing life, I think, is that um, even though I have probably close to six months of the year where I spend very little time actually putting anything to paper, um, so much of that time is spent um, solving things, whether it's, you know, questions of what I want to work on next, um, character issues in a novel I'm working on, lines of dialogue. I'll often have a, a line that usually poems come to me this way, which I don't typically publish, but I use quite a bit for craft purposes within nonfiction and, and prose and fiction. Um, so I'll, I have whole lines and music of language come to me while walking. So I don't consider it anymore that I'm not writing just because I don't have Stephen King's um, schedule. And that has been a bomb for me. Um, and we'll talk more about pandemic stuff later, but both of those things, the, the brain, the brain as the office and the solved by walking have given me actually quite a bit of opening in a time that a lot of people have experienced as constraint. I think primarily because I've always had those um, constraints of not having my space or my time always be the way I want it to with a schedule. And so I've had to work with that for a long time. And it's nice to have seen that become a tool that it feels like gives me some resilience right now. Um, this is the, the true tell it true slide because not all trail building is fun and beautiful with views of the Alaska range. This is bushwhacking, this is pouring rain, and this is a horrible um, no uh black fly infestation that I was itching from for about six weeks. So in case it comes off like I'm trying to make my life look perfect from the trail, it's not. There's lots of days like that. Um, Oh yeah, my uh, my writing. Oh shoot, I forgot the rest of this. I was the book that I have published um, is Dirt Work. That's what most people who know my work know me from. Um, I'm working on a novel right now, and I was supposed to put um, the picture that's on the the cover of my um, Manila folder with all my notes in it. I have a picture that I found. It's an old sepia photo of a girl on a horse that became my visual of the main character, and that's where it's supposed to go. So sorry, that's a hole. <laughs> um, I think that might be a good intro for me for now. Um, unless uh, there's anything I left out, Asia. Otherwise, I think we can just move into conversation. No, that, Thanks for the that's chance. Beautiful. Oh, thank you, yeah, Christine. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Let's plop out of your screen share now. Yeah. And um, yeah, at the bottom of your screen. Sorry. Uh, Here we go. Is it gone? Yeah. Um, my, my internet, there we go. Yeah. Internet connection is lagging. So <laughs> that was just fantastic. So between the two of you, um, a really incredible portrait into living and working in Alaska that, well, for me personally, just reminds me tremendously of my childhood. Hmm. But, but, um, in that instance, my mother was a painter living in conditions that are more like Christine's than so um, it certainly reminds me um, every day about the importance of creating spaces for artists to share work where they can really share and really make work and, um, you know, cultivate this, this uh, creative ecology in Alaska. So with that fantastic orientation, um, I just wanted to ask you um, a bit more about um, what you've been finding yourselves digging into for inspiration from other artists and media in recent times. Let's, you know, in, in the, in the um, mentally, if not physically isolated aspects of COVID, you know, recognizing that you both 
already live somewhat remotely. Just really interested in knowing what material for source and inspiration you're going to creatively in, in COVID. Let's shift back to you, Sarah. Well, it's been a somewhat undisciplined time for me. I think um, I decided early on that I wasn't going to put a whole lot of pressure on myself to read the right books or the right articles. And so I've been a little bit more omnivorous than I often am. Um, but a few things that I have been looking at and thinking about recently, um, I'm, I'm becoming much more interested, I think, in the work of quote unquote outsider artists and um, people who make work that have, have not arrived at the art world through the traditional source or the traditional path. And there is, I think there's a lot for me um, to look at and think about in that. Um, I can't say I've done a ton of art reading, although my favorite go-to um, art journal, which might seem a little strange for an Alaskan, is I love to read just about everything in glass tire, which is focused on art from Texas. I think they're, uh, they have fantastic writing and it taught, they talk about art to me anyway, in a way that is uh, refreshingly unpretentious. Um, I often have, I often struggle mightily with the uh, writing, with writing about art and the way art is talked about. Um, I also read a book called Tell Them I Said No, which is about artists who have kind of actively decided that they do not want to participate in the larger art world and that has uh, some immense appeal for me. Um, and otherwise, my, <laughs> my fiction reading has been pretty scattershot. I listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm working. Um, I can't afford an Audible subscription, so I'm limited to what is available through the public library. And um, I seem to find myself back in Nordic noir at the moment, which mm -hmm. I have made quite a lot of work. Uh, accompanied by, um, although I'm trying to think what the last legitimate serious book that I listened to was. Um, I work a lot with Yellow Cedar and I listened to The Canary Tree recently and that was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, so that's what I've Thank written you. in my head. That's a treasure trove of interesting um, avenues <laughs> for all of us to explore. Thank you, Sarah. What about you, Christine? What have you been um, finding yourself digging into sort of differently, perhaps in terms of reading, source material, creative inspiration? Um, Nordic Noir is my go-to for t packing into the backpack and reading in the tent for like 10 minutes every night. So I'm right there with you on the, on the favorite uh, taciturn Norwegian detective stories. Um, I have for a, for a couple of years had a practice to guide my reading um, that I set up when I realized that I was reading too, too much in one arena, um, too many Americans, too many, um, probably more than needed to be white Americans of a contemporary vein. So I set up this paradigm where I, every book that I read, the next book, I switch either the genre uh, or the, um, the author's uh, demographic. So, I read a poetry book by a man, the next book can either be a different genre um, by a man or um, it has to, sorry, I'm not explaining it very well. I have to change either the genre or something about the writer so that I'm not ever reading exactly the same thing in a row. And that's led me to move really in cool ways from like a white poet to a male poet to a black female fiction writer to a black nonfiction male to a, you know, skipping along like that. And that had provided a ton of opening into my reading. I, I considered that I read pretty diversely already, but having a little bit of structure like that really, and I'm not, I'm not rigid about it. Like if I come across a book in a little free library or I'm reading Nordic noir cause I'm on the trail, then, you know, it's not like a, meant to be a, 
a hand slap rule, but it really opened my reading in cool ways. So I had thought that I was reading pretty diversely already and had logged my reading a little bit of akin to, if people are familiar with the Vita count, the nonprofit that counts um, the demographic spread in, in a lot of different publications and presses to determine how open or closed they are to like, like you were referring to Sarah, um, the outside voice or the non-dominant um, paradigm. Um, but when the, the, um, the social pressures of race and violence and police brutality exploded in early summer in the US, um, I took a little bit more serious look at my reading and tried to read primarily black writers for quite a bit. I was just by chance reading James Baldwin, um, a collection of essays um, I was I was reading um, at the time and his writing about race is just mind blowing that he could have been writing from you know Harlem uh, decades and decades ago um, and have it feel so similar. Um, so a lot of the reading I've been doing um, has been African-American writers, uh, recent ones that I enjoyed, a memoir by Sarah Broom called The Yellow House about um, uh, Hurricane Katrina. I've been really into um, Hanif Abdurraqib, um, who has amazing book titles. This one is called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, with a wolf with a um, rapper getup on. And it's primarily music criticism, but he's a poet as well. He has another couple of beautiful books, poems. Um, one of them is called um, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, and he has a new one out that I can't remember the name of right now. Anyway, um, I've been really enjoying him. Um, and I've been uh, trying to listen to podcasts more, kind of open up my, uh, ten I usually tend to have either I'm reading or I'm, it's quiet. Sometimes my husband is a big music aficionado and I really love music, but I, he curates a lot of it. And so when he's not playing it, I just want quiet. So podcasts have always been a stretch for me, but I, I actually really enjoyed a couple this year. One was Dolly Parton's America by um, Jod, I uh, can't remember how you say his name, from, um, from uh, Radiolab. It's great. It looks at race, class, culture, history, Americanness through the lens of Dolly Parton, and um, it was really worth a listen. And the other one was um, Finding Fred, which was uh, about um, Mr. Rogers. It's basically a nine-episode um, nine series on Mr. Rogers. Um, and the... Uh, it's really great. I, I was expecting it, I think, maybe to have a little bit more soft focus nostalgia, which I don't really go for in anything. It always makes my hackles get up. <laughs> but um, the, the angle um, taken in this one is just really good. I, I highly recommend anybody who grew up in the 60s and 70s and has Fred um, Rogers kind of backstory. Carvel Wallace is the name of the... Uh, the host and he's a african-american critic and writer and he talks about kind of what what's up with the mr rogers vibe and how does it pull in people from all areas and races and socioeconomic backgrounds in the sense that they feel heard and both of those have been really interesting within light of the recent fractured social fabric feel right now because they look at the sense of a kind of group collective identity and how that can can persist around certain things despite other real distances. So I, I've enjoyed both of those recently too. Oh, it's fantastic to, um, I've been taking notes furiously while both of you have been talking about the, the things that you like to, to read and that you feel compelled to read, the deep sense of responsibility, you know, to, um, to engaging with and reckoning with what's going on in our world through your, through your media sources. I truly respect that. Um, I, I'm thinking about um, another really pressing issue for all of us, which is reckoning with um, life on Earth in the Anthropocene. And as creative producers, what particular weight or inspiration the current era bears on your work? Um, and I don't know if that's... Um, something that either of you would like to answer by way of sharing any particular work, but I'm, I'm just interested in hearing your, your thoughts on that. Um, maybe, maybe Sarah, you, you would um, share some thoughts on that and then we could, um, then we could hear from Christine. And again, if either of you wishes to show any work relating to that. 
Yeah, well, I am probably one of your, uh, I, I am not a particularly profound speaker, I find, about things like this, but I, I have definitely been drawn lately into what um, our friend Cheryl Riley refers to as the lesser landscapes. And although I've spent a lot of time in what we might classify as wilderness, and we can talk about how or not, how that is something of an artificial construct anyway, um, I find myself really drawn to the places that we care a bit less about. They're not wilderness, they're not urban, it's the sort of in-between space that in the landscape that has great ecological value but has often been um, somewhat mistreated or affected by humans. Um, and a lot like the slides that I show you, I feel like I live in a space like that and I'm pretty interested in exploring it. And you know, I, I think I've been somewhat vocal. I'm probably on public record somewhere saying that at times I am a little bit, I am not necessarily a true believer that art does everything we say that it does. Um, I'm not, I am willing to question the effectiveness of my activity. Um, I keep coming back to it and I keep doing it, so I must be able to talk myself into it. But I would hope in some ways as an artist that if there is a chain of events, it is that my work points to some of the beauty and some of the uh, value of these lesser places and that that interest can be transmitted to other people and that those other people um, might care enough to take care or become better stewards. And I don't know if that works. Um, I also tried to do a bit of what I call Robin Hooding, which is using my work to uh, steal from the rich and give to the poor. Um, and a fair bit of what resources that I generate from my work, which again is not gigantic. Um, I try to divert towards things that I care about. And I also have been thinking about a lot about as a, someone who's committed as an object maker, um, really thinking about what am I using to make my work and how much space does it take up? Um, can I say what I, we're, we're under a lot of pressure, I think, in the greater art world to go big or go home and can I say what I need to say in the least amount of space using the least amount of materials as possible and is that a legitimate um, way to go about making work so there you go fabulous thank you so much I want to ask you if the title lowlands for your recent exhibit your solo exhibit at the state museum if that refers to those sort of vulnerable or abject and often underlooked undervalued parcels of land yeah i i guess i was i also was considering some of the myths that we operate in as alaskans about the landscape and we pay so much attention to the dramatic beautiful places but there there is a lot of other alaska and i am someone who lives in the middle of the other Alaska in a lot of ways. And uh, that's, that is what that refers to. Mm, yeah. Lowlands is also the title of a novel that I, by one of my favorite writers, Junpa Lahiri. And it, it, it mm. speaks to, uh, you know, a place in which some children grew up in India, uh, an area that was, you know, just in the outskirts of a city full of chemical sort of cesspool. And, um, really speaking to, you know, what strong and family, you know, and values came up in that environment. And, and uh, it, it's interesting, it, it, it refers again to how we redefine um, our planet in terms of um, stewardship and our position in that. Um, and so I'm curious, Christine, what your thoughts are um, to the same question. And, and if you wish, include within it, a response to, to anything you know Sarah might have mentioned. 
uh, I really am drawn to to those um, those un unlooked at, unspoken, untalked about spaces, kind of between wild and um, you know inhabited. I I think a lot of American study on quote wilderness has done damage to the notion that we have always lived in the world in nature among it and that you know indigenous communities have lived in what we've called wilderness untrammeled by humans for a millennia and so i the same way that i'm always looking in writing for the thing that's not being said or the flip side of what's being said i, I really feel that also with places like looking for the backyard places the places where grass grows up in a crack in a sidewalk the the i guess you know i, I often think when people ask me you know well what what do you want you know, what do you want someone to take home from your work about, you know, working in wilderness or whatever? And I'm like, you know, really, the I try not to think about it that way. I want people just to take what they'll take. But I think the thing that I take from it is just that constant reminder that nature is not separate from us, that the, di the dichotomy of nature and human, I think, might be one of the most damaging ones that has ever been up there with the Who's, who's on top, men or women dichotomy. <laughs> they maybe have done equal damage. But um, I just, yeah, there, there's a sense, I think, um, for me that the, the climate problems and tragedies that are unfolding have so much root in that sense of thinking that we're separate from nature. And so my work and my way in the world, I'm always trying to push us to remember, and myself included, that, you know, breathing is nature eating and chewing and digesting is nature. Clouds are nature. Pavement is made of sand and water. It's nature. Sweating, laughing, sex, work, tools. It's all freaking nature. <laughs> you know, so when I, when I get sort of consigned to the nature writing zone where that has to mean you're writing about glacier travel or, you know, rivers, which I do write about as well, I, I always just want to push back on that and, and encourage everyone and myself included to remember that nature is a huge category that includes all kinds of ugly and broken and clumsy and unsophisticated things as well as the, the great stuff. And it's all at risk, you know, it's, it's all at risk. It's not just the vistas and the polar bears that are at risk. It's also, are we going to be able to make concrete anymore when sand is pretty much gone? Are we going to be able to build buildings when the edges of where we're building them are crumbling into the sea. So I just am always thinking about all of that stuff together. It's not really a very elegant punch line, but it's kind of the messy place where I seem to find it the most compelling. Mm -hmm. And yet, as messy as it is, your writing really um, elegantly um, brings us into it and into the sense of possibility and hope and focus. I wonder if you would share with us some some recent work, is perhaps one of the recent uh, publications um, that explores yeah, some of these ideas. Oh, God, I was supposed to read. Yeah, um, sure. I actually have a little part. It's about a page from an essay that just came out. Um, it's a, it was published a while ago about cranes, and there's a little piece that kind of talks about what we're talking about here. Hopefully it's not too long. How are we doing on time? Might, should I read for a couple minutes? Yes, we're doing great. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm talking here about, um, it's a long essay about sandhill cranes, and here I'm talking kind of more generally, but I make a few references to them. <clears throat> Animals know how to use what the world offers. I love how suited creatures are to habitat, to a level of survival that includes a core of thrive. I admire a wolf's coat, water resistant and warm, comfortable in temperatures from 80 above to 40 below, while I change in and out and in and out of 10 layers from season to season. I notice how a wood frog's spotted skin conceals it among dead aspen leaves floating at the edge of the pond where it breeds. I covet a snowy owl's furry feet. I marvel that a bear sow's body delays egg implantation until it has enough fat stores to grow a fetus. When I watch the cranes fly southeast last fall, they migrate in like epic proportion over our Healy in our property. Um, my unspoken admiration took a further turn and a fully worded question sprang into my mind as I looked at the sky and it recurred to me every time I heard their racket for weeks. What is it like to find the world sufficient? 
I've asked it over and over in the months since, a quan that I worry at, hoping for the sharp stab of insight. Cranes expertly adapt themselves to the world, what the world offers. They plan their travel routes around water, patching a migratory path across linked wetlands. Even the way cranes nest their sites or site their nests is passive design at its best. Atop elevated humps, water drains to the base, leaving the, the high and dry spot for a nest. This is how you find the world sufficient. You make a bed out of whatever soft thing is near. When there is water, you drink it. When it is dark, you rest, unless dark helps you, and then, like an owl or a bat, you prowl. One of the greatest tragedies of climate change, and one we can never explain to animals, is that we are shaping a world that will no longer provide for them. The simplest cause of extinction is that the world becomes not enough or too much. We have recently begun to admit that we are vulnerable to the same fate. Like most species, humans will not be around forever. Our ingenuity and plastics and desalinated water and space travel occasionally convince us that we do not evolve or exist within limits. But if the world becomes insufficient, we too will diminish and die out. I am unused to true scarcity, the kind that triggers thoughts of extinction. My life, like many people's I know, flirts with self-sufficiency, eating by the season's dictates, living off the grid, harvesting wood and sun for fuel, and still I rarely confront need. A lean berry year is softened by the remainders of last year's epic bounty still frozen in Ziplocs. A cloudy month means we buy more gas for the generator. When one summer brings not enough salmon, we trade with friends, firewood for fillets, and we eat less fish and more of something else. For most of us, scarcity means there are no ripe avocados at the grocery store. Perhaps only when we have to confront the stark reality of not enough, the hunger or thirst the developing world knows, which Americans consign to our apocalyptic novels, then we will truly grasp that we are animals. When the world is suddenly or slowly unable to provide, we'll realize it is all we have, all we have ever had. Wow. It's from an anthology, actually, I have to give it a plug, um, edited by a wonderful woman, Susan Fox Rogers, who's um, written some great similar, uh, similarly described nature writing. Um, but it's called When Birds Are Near, and it has um, a couple of great essays. Elizabeth Bradfield uh, with an Alaskan Connections has a beautiful essay in it. Um, J. Drew um, Lanham, who's an African-American birder, who's written a lot in Orion Magazine and other places about birding while black, has a, an essay. Jonathan Franzen, um, a lot of other beautiful ones about everything from you know birding in Panama to watching a bird out the window. It's a great one for birds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. What a, what a gorgeous, poignant piece of writing. Thank you. This is a, a time when I, I want to open up our dialogue, you know, to any questions that might be from our viewers and to you of each other. Um, perhaps I'll ask you, Sarah, if you have a question for Christine or, or two, and then. Yeah, I had a, I had one comment, maybe more than a question. Um, and a question too. Um, I, in, in doing the requisite amount of um, cyber stalking that you have to do before you give a presentation, I noticed on your Facebook page that you had posted an essay by Helen McDonald, um, a, <laughs> kind of about not liking nature writing. <laughs> I found it very, I found it a great relief because I have always felt extraordinarily guilty that, um, I really don't like a lot of nature writing and I've been trying to figure out why it is and what I, what it is that puts me off. And, um, I found that I found her explanation or her take on the situation very helpful. Um, I think like you, I find my experience in, in moving across the landscape much more animal, um, or that's how I find it. I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but, um, yeah. And anyway, my, my question has a little bit more to do with um, gender and the work that you do. Um, I've had a couple really kind of surprising and notable instances when I've been a resident in, in national parks. One was in Denali and one was on Isle Royal where um, I was confronted by fellow visitors who, or by park visitors who 
made it very, very clear to me that they did not think that I should be there by myself. Um, and in both cases, it was women and they were very angry at me. It seemed like my presence in the landscape alone um, fed into something that was really upsetting to them. And those are experiences that have stayed with me. And I wonder if that's something you've encountered in your trail work and if so, what you think about it or what you do about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Both of those comments are really interesting. I have a ton of thoughts on what you said about nature writing. I know that wasn't the question, but I, I totally hear you and I completely agree and think that nature writing as a genre has really disserviced readers and writers um, a lot. Um, and that's one reason why I was interested in writing what became known as nature writing because I was writing about it through work. Like my book is full of metal and diesel and a lot. And some people at readings and so on would trouble about that. Like, Oh, you know, that is that nature writing if you're writing about a backhoe and I'm like, hell yes, it is. Like I'm writing using a backhoe to make a place for you to walk. <laughs> and there's a link sleeping over there and diesel comes from dead plants. So like, what's the disconnect? So anyway, I totally hear you about that. We can have a whole conversation. The gender piece is, is interesting. Um, I haven't experienced that degree of hostility exactly about the aloneness. I think part of it is because I my most of my time in out in parks has been with crews, so I'm actually not seen alone very much. Although I have a a solo hiking and you know skiing and whatever practice, most of the time I'm encountering other people with other women, often on a crew of three or four women. Um, I have experienced a little bit of that, though. I, I think it's the internalized sexism is what they call it when women project the most intense boundaries around what you shouldn't do as a woman. Um, and that is always really troubling to me. But I'm not exactly sure how to pull it all out, except a, a lot of it, I think, comes from fear. It comes from yeah. people feeling as if that is unavailable to them, either because of something frightening or because having been disempowered. Maybe it isn't always fear. Sometimes I think it might also be a sense of um, indig indignantness <laughs> that, mm -hmm. you know, why couldn't I have done that? You know, we, we met people, I met a couple of women in Glacier when I worked on an all-female trail crew who stick to, in my mind in different ways. One of them was more angry, came across two of us women working with rock, big rock, doing rock work with rock bars and hammers and all that. And she was like, well, I'll be darned, that sure wasn't anything I could have ever done. And she scowled and kind of kicked stuff out of the way. And, and it seemed to me like a judgment that was coming from the place of like, oh, why couldn't I have ever done that? And it just got pivoted into more aggression. And I wonder if some of that is happening with the solo thing. It's a, it's a disempowerment or a, or a wistfulness. And it, it pivots on externalized anger instead, because it's pretty painful to be wistful about something you might never get. It's harder to inhabit that, I think. And it's easier to go like, oh why you or whatever but the counterpoint to that is another lovely old lady in white sneakers on a trail by herself with a stick she had picked up and my partner and I on the trail were coming down sweaty and carrying a chainsaw and hot and not thinking we had the best job in the world by any means and the woman stopped us and she grabbed each of us by the bicep and said I hope you know how lucky you are and she just like glowed with this like 85 year old energy about just the Maybe the choices she wishes she could have made, but she kind of projected that as a sense of joy that we had that. And so, I don't know, is isn't exactly an answer, but it's a... Yeah, and I, I, certainly, I certainly don't want to imply that by any means that most of my interactions with other people out in the world, whether by myself um, or with other people are negative. There've just been a few that have really, I think, really really shocked me um yeah they had a lot of power doesn't take many negative ones to override a feeling of a lot of positive you know and also yeah. it it pulls it pulls you into a state of questioning yourself even if you know okay the, these are these are the skills that i have i'm not a risk taker etc 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 um, then you you start questioning whether well should I be out here by myself I I'm not sure and and then I go back and I say well if I was a guy nobody would ever think twice about any of the stuff that I'm doing so so I'm just gonna get after it yep 
think that's the bottom line is just the internal check-in and recognizing what our strengths are and where we're vulnerable and yeah for sure i have a question for you are we too too rushed to or are we too close to the end to ask a quick question no go ahead go ahead and ask it um and looking similarly can canvassing your i've seen your work over the years in public spaces like 229 right down the road has your piece behind the bar that i've always known oh yeah that's sarah tabard but um, I, it was cool to look at your work more recent, and um, I've admired a couple of the broadsides you've done um, for Broadsided Press. Um, so that is a different question, but I'm really interested in your relationship with wood. I, I, I'm not a crafts person, but I, I have a, you know, a, a pastime and a working and building with wood, and I have such an intense intimacy with it. And I'm so curious to hear what that's like for you to make your work with a medium that I have so much love for and and also how you think about um, yourself on the art craft continuum so mm. anything in there that grabs your interest especially I just want to hear you talk a little bit about wood <laughs> well I I think that in some ways the most interesting thing about wood as a medium is that it was it's something that was so so alive and it contains within the material itself it, it has it's it's um, written the history of its life inside itself and you don't ever really get away with that when you're get away from that when you're working it, it um it does to some extent make the rules of what you get to do and there's always a bit of a negotiation that goes on um, between me and the medium. Um, as for the, as for my interest in it, I think um, living with someone who is a person who who's a very fine woodworker and, and craftsman in his own right, I've been learning a lot um, about uh, how to make things and am very interested in continuing that pursuit in a probably in a more formal way i'm i'm scheming on going off to uh if i can swing it three months of a, a woodworking program next fall um in terms of the art and craft continuum yeah i'm definitely moving along in the middle there somewhere um definitely my i think my heart probably is more towards the craft side, um, although I seem to be functioning in some ways in the world of art. Um, I don't know, and I don't know if it matters to me very much what people call the thing that I do. I expect that in the future, um, when I get a few more skills under my belt, more of what you will see from me would probably be categorized as craft, and I am super excited about that. Yeah, I want great. things that people can use too. Like I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested in making some objects that are functional, like literally functional. I know that art serves a purpose too, but something that you can pick up and say, okay, this this thing I need is something. I, I think we have, um, we can talk later about connections through Glacier, but um, I am very always very very envious of i i believe your friend heidi the studio potter is a good friend of my sister oh no kidding oh that's, that's great and, um, every time i'm there i'm like damn it i why did i not go into ceramics i would have been so much happier just being a, a functional potter but it's not too late <laughs> oh it is too late trust it me late. it's way okay, too fine. late I love the what you you just gave me a gift in the in the um, what you said about negotiating with wood, because that has been such a, I'm like I said I'm not an artist, but my life spent building trail stuff with wood and getting firewood and building this wood log home. I have so many places where I, you know, you have to struggle. You're trying to make a round living thing fit into the designs made for dimensional lumber. And there are so many times where I've been like, oh, I'm just fighting with this wood, but now I know I'm negotiating with it. And I think that is so much richer. So thank you for that. And I, I can't wait to see what you make next. Wow. Thank you both so much for just an amazing conversation. It's really one, been one of the most interesting that we've had 
and I want to invite all of our folks who have joined us in the Zoom to turn on your video if you'd like on your mic. And if you have any questions or comments that you just want to share in this space, it's really nice for everybody to uh, be visible and, um, and to recognize like the community that we are far and wide, especially during this time, um, how much um, strength that we draw from being connected. Good to see your faces from across Alaska and outside. And there's the, the, yeah. Does anybody have a question or comments that they wish to share? You're more than welcome. I am always so overwhelmed by what I absorb from the people in on these sessions. I, I've just learned and absorbed so much. I, I don't have questions yet because I'm so absorbed in what you've said and really processing it. It's just been incredible, both of you, what you bring to it. I'm, I'm again starting my day on such a great note because of your awesomeness. <laughs> Thank you, Asia, for bringing this to us. It's just fabulous every week. And you two ladies just inspire me so much. Thank Thanks, you. Rika. Thank you. Rika. Thank you.